This is The Shift Podcast. The Shift Daily Podcast. Kim Kepke joins us. She's from Global Calgary. She's a sports reporter. And we talk about the legacy of Walter Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky's father has passed away. Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. He comes out of his cage, fills us in on the potential of a hotel in space, which has been in the news. They say 2027, that it could be going up to space for the hotels. And Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, University of Manitoba, virologist, gives us an idea of what life after COVID could look like, and he breaks down herd immunity and travel. Get the Shift Daily Podcast from your favorite podcast platforms. Please like it and share it. That would be awesome. It's an incredibly uh, sad night tonight. It was a night that's always inevitable. It's sort of a shadow in the back of our minds when we think of some of our mentors and family, fathers and grandfathers, and um, their health. And that came true, I think, for uh, the Gretzky family, and that came true for all Canadians uh, for sure. Cami Kepke with Global Calgary is here with us. Jumping on short notice, too, Cami. Thanks for doing that. Hey, anytime. Thank you for having me. So um, Walter Gretzky was the kind of guy... Now I've never I did never meet Walter, but if if I ever walked into a hockey rink and he was standing there, A, I probably would not be surprised. And B, I think most Canadians would be very comfortable with just saying, Oh hey Walter. And then continuing on with their day. That's the kind of uh Canada's hockey dad sort of persona that he adopted for all Canadians. What do you think? It's kind of like that heroes get remembered, legends never die, sandlot kind of moment, right? But it's mm-hmm. totally true. It's it's weird how a person can have both this almost uh, icon-like status attached to them, but be so approachable at the same time. Honestly, uh, even some of my friends, they have pictures in their homes of them as kids with Walter Gretzky holding them when they were legitimate toddlers, and their parents were almost more excited to meet Walter than Wayne sometimes or to have their kids skating and getting some of that sage advice from Walter. Uh, he was sick for a long time. It was, um, it was about five years ago. And he, he, I guess he's, he's just the Canadian guy. He's blue collar worker, uh, worked as a lineman. And, um, and then he got sick. He fell and he hurt his head and he has five kids and, lives in a normal house that, you know, the kind that most average income Canadians live in, and then has a stroke and recovers from that back in the 90s. And all the while, yeah, I'm not sure if um, when Wayne Gretzky walked in the rink, if Walter didn't get almost as much applause as his kid did. Yeah, it's a... It's kind of an image. You mentioned the blue-collar Canadian hockey dad just hardworking outdoor hockey and the whole image has kind of a rosy sheen to it like a feeling of familiarity the voice that's so recognizable with a guy who didn't need to be loud to get people to listen and also the kind of guy that he was a you know was a tough dad like he used to write schedules in the house i i had seen a documentary that he wrote schedules in the house about when practice time was and when homework time was and whatever but at the same time uh, became incredibly soft and caring, compassionate um, as a grandfather and so on uh, in all of this. Uh, the amount of memorabilia, five kids, I believe there was. There was three boys uh, plus Wayne. <laughs> He's like the 
He's like the unicorn and then a daughter too. Um, the memorabilia that they collected, yeah, where does this stuff go? Do you, do you know where all of these things would tend to go? Does the family just put it away? What, what do you think happens with all the stuff? Cause his whole basement was filled, uh, with trophies of all of his kids too. Of course, lots of incredibly uh, special Wayne stuff. Well, remember, they just got some of it back because he had a bunch of it stolen from him and charges were just laid uh, last year. You also mentioned the work ethic there. What was it that we used to say, uh, the talent, it's not God-given, it's Wally-given. But you mentioned his kids. Uh, The other thing that is special, even though his health was declining in later years, Walter did get to live to see his great-grandchildren. And that's pretty special, too. I'd imagine that, you know, a lot of the stuff probably goes on to Wayne Gretzky's grandkids to kind of hear some of those stories about how, you know, Walter was the one driving Wayne to the rink for his first NHL game and Wayne drove his dad for his final game. That was another story that Wayne Gretzky told that's pretty special. So I imagine it's just something that uh, goes on through the family. I can't see it all going up for sale because it's just a family where you feel like that's meaningful. You think of uh, now hockey so expensive you think of elite families that have, you know, some pretty high paying jobs that are able to, you know, put kids in top programs, top training. They have their own skills coach in the summer. And that's just not the image that you associate with the Gretzky's, especially back in that day. And to um, Ron McLean, you know, to salute Ron and his work, too, with his shows, he did a, a thing. It was about four or five years ago in Brantford in, in their house and down in the basement and sort of. You know, Walter was there, Wayne was there, getting a, a snapshot of what life was like in the backyard with the outdoor rink. And, and it was it was a great piece, like Ron always does for his shows. Um, but that was only five years ago. And I'm guessing that Wayne probably lives in a pretty nice house. And yet Walter, you know, sort of stuck to the family home and, and, and they still kept that. And that's pretty special, too. Yeah, you know, there are tributes, really lovely, thoughtful tributes pouring in from you know, NHL alumni, those around the games. But the ones that really stick with you are the people who fell in love with the game almost through Walter, the people who say, you know, Walter, through his charity work, helped them get their first hockey gear, the people who met him at the schools, or, you know, he's famous for people in their hometown for just walking up to him and he would give them the tour. Yeah, and he signed a lot of and stuff. And you, uh, you can see Wayne's old mansion online that was for sale. And yeah, yeah, pretty different from the humble house that he uh, grew up in. <laughs> um, we have a little piece here that we're going to play. I'll get you to hang on one sec, Cammie. Um, it's a story like you spoke of how uh, Walter Grissy brought a smile back to a theft victim in 2016. Mike Agriesti works nonstop for hours on end. He rewards himself with Wayne Gretzky memorabilia. Best hockey player in the world that ever lived. Coming to work Monday morning, he faced a heart-stopping moment. I knew right away when I pulled up in my car, when the glass was smashed, that I got robbed. The wall that had been packed with everything from a Gretzky retirement jersey to dozens of hockey cards was empty. My heart just sank. Entire Wayne Gretzky uh, memorabilia collection was was stolen. He had started the collection when he was just a little boy. I don't think he could put a value to it. It meant that so much to him. Agriesti was inconsolable, but had no choice but to get right back at it. I was working on a car, and all of a sudden I see Walter Gretzky roll up out of a out of a customer's car. And I was in tears before he even stepped out of the car. That's true. He's not lying about that, because uh, I saw him with tears in his eyes. 
took that picture over there. The elder Gretzky hadn't come empty-handed. He brought a famous shot of his son with him, a signed replacement for one that was stolen. He brought me a a picture, uh, literally exactly the same that I had. He showed it to you, did he? Yeah. He's very excited about it. That's nice to hear. So you hold and it in, you can see he held the Stanley Cup. Not everything can be replaced, something Canada's hockey dad gets. Some of the items that were taken, like the cards, even I didn't have them. The lone survivor of the theft, this photo of Gretzky, was tucked away in the corner. It's from back before he was even a household name. And it's not just Wayne who's a hero here. Agriesti says in this town, Walter may be even more famous. Like, no disrespect to Wayne at all, but Walter's probably the kindest man in the, in the community. You might say there's some serious mutual admiration here. He's a wonderful person and a true, true Wayne Gretzky fan and hockey fan. That man doesn't need to say anything. Just his presence alone will put a smile on anybody's face. Agriesti says maybe things do happen for a reason. If his collection hadn't been stolen, this moment would never have happened. Christina Stevens, Global News. I'm Shane Hewitt. Cammy Kepke is here, too. That's so true. When uh, I don't know how many places Walter Gretzky would walk into not make a speech, wave at the crowd, and get a standing ovation. He didn't even, didn't even need to say anything. No, and it's funny. Even uh, right before I uh, hopped on the call here, I was rooting around for headphones. And an old picture I didn't even know I had of uh, a Gordie Howe fell out of my backpack, and it brought me back to uh, immediately after the passing of Gordie. One of the guys who had such... Great things to say about him and his impact on the game was actually Walter. I, I mean, I don't know how many uh, famous quotes that we attribute to Wayne actually came from Walter as well. We know the the famous one, skate to where the puck is going, not where it's been, actually came from Walter. And Wayne was just repeating them. So he's made an impact on our culture for sure. One that won't be forgotten anytime soon. Okay, um, Walter Gretzky passes away. He was 82. He battled uh, Parkinson's and many other health issues in the last few years. And uh, Canadian, Canada's hockey dad, I would even say the world's hockey dad, uh, passes away in the hockey community. Uh, left very sad uh, tonight. Cami Kepke's with us, Global News. Thanks for stepping in short notice and getting into some hockey chats with us. Appreciate it, buddy. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Most of us never met Walter Gretzky, but all of us feel like we knew the man. And we're all in mourning tonight. Uh, Walter Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky's dad, passed away. It does take you back. I mean, it, when you hear these stories, you know, dads pass away every day. When we hear some of these stories of these people that we look up to, they always hit us a little bit differently. And it does take me back to, you know, my dad was a hockey dad and um, supported me and, and you know, uh, managed hockey. And I think when I... I think back to when I was older and I was playing in a a media game and it was the first time my son saw me play hockey and my parents came to that. Now I kind of got into a fight and got in the penalty box, but the, um, and then there was another game charity game that was against some firefighters and my parents came to that. And so my, my mom and my dad always said, you know, it's always fun to watch the kids play, even when you're an old, out-of-shape adult. I added that part in. And that that's kind of the cool part, I think, that I, I sort of take away from all of this, is not only a hockey dad and a hockey mom, they're very, very different and uniquely special. 
but at the same time, they're they're very distinct from all other parents. I don't ever mean that one parent's better than another. I just mean that they are distinct in that there is a circle of friends that gets created around hockey that changes every year. And sometimes you get new friends and sometimes old friends come back in. But there's this commonality that comes with it. And hockey dads are always that safe place. They're they're always that safe place. They're the eternal coach, probably too hard, um, probably have terrible timing on when they talk to kids about things that need to be talked about when it's probably just give a hug, right? But they're a special breed. So when one, like Walter Gretzky, sort of bubbles to the top of the entire country, if not the entire NHL and hockey world, it seems to be more incredibly special. I, I, I can't help but think of the days when you would see some of those hockey dads, and I see it today. When my son plays, there's some dads that have haven't had kids on those teams for four years, five years, kids have gone to college. And yet, they're still at the rink. They're still cheering on the kids. They know all the kids on all the teams. Um, hey, your son had a great night tonight. There's just something that screams this idyllic idea of what is community that seems to be centered on the hockey dad. And I think that's why that one uh, hits everybody so incredibly special. Um, probably coached tied a lot of skates, made sure kids had hockey tape, cheered them on, and still fans after the fact. This is the Shift Podcast. Do you, anyone have their keys around, by the way, for the cage? No? Anybody? Anyone? Uh, yeah, uh, we're good to go here. All right, cool. Um, well, let's get started. If we got the keys, we can open it up. Weird science. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. If you ever go to a science party, there's going to be one guy standing in the center of the room talking to absolutely everybody. That's not going to be Andrew Ferreira, but he will be there looking handsome in the corner. Andrew, how are you? I was about to say, like, I would not ever be in the center of the room. Like, ever. <laughs> I would... I would... I'm usually the guy who is probably out on the back porch just kind of relaxing and staring mm -hmm. into the sky. And people are mm -hmm. going, like, is he okay? Does he need help? Uh, but no, I'm fine. I'm Who's totally fine. I'm corner. just, I got invited. I'm, I'm, like a, I'm like a sixth wheel. Don't mind me. I'm just here for the wings. Nice. Well, uh, we're glad you're here for the wings. Uh, we might have eaten them all already, but... Uh, we were talking about where would you go when COVID's done? Cause we're going to have that conversation next hour here on the shift. And mm -hmm. it might be a cheesy thanks, Bob TV segue to talk about, uh, well, how about going to a space hotel? No, I would go to Northern Japan. Oh, really? Earthquakes? Yep. Oh. I would, I would camp in the mountains in Northern Japan really? and just, oh yeah, that's what I would do. Seems weird. It's a hundred percent what I would do. It'd just be so nice. No one could even speak the language I spoke. I, it'd be wonderful. Anyway, <laughs> what language do you speak anyway? Maybe we should ask that uh, question. I don't know. Space. Um, right. The space hotel. Space, space um, hotel. I think it's stupid. Perfect. Thanks for coming on. It's great to hear you're your welcome. voice. You're, you're very right. welcome. Andrew um, Frere right there with weird science, <laughs> everybody. Back into the cage. Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I saw this. Um, this was first proposed. And if you're not following along here, uh, you can just look up 2027 Space Hotel. Um, 
It's a California company called Gateway Foundation. And I remember back in 2019, because these are the things I remember, not my friend's birthdays, but when companies announce stupid things. Um, they, in 2019, wanted to create something, what they then, you know, what they ended up calling the Von Braun Station, which I think is an awesome name. Just don't use it for a stupid hotel. Um, the concept, and this is what they wanted it to be, would essentially be 24... Um, hotel rooms essentially connected by elevator shafts that would make up a wheel um, mm -hmm. and this wheel would rotate giving artificial gravity and it would orbit the earth and okay it's so it, in you know uh, you know on paper i think that sounds super cool and i think that's definitely a place that humanity is going um, a couple years you know down the road now in 2021 it's no longer called the von braun station it's now called the voyager station which is a step back as much as i love the voyager probes the von braun station just sounds great. And if you don't know who Von Braun is, Von Braun is generally credited as being the father of rocket science. First, he helped the Nazis do rocket things. Then America was like, hey, we'll forget about that thing about you being a Nazi if you come over and help us beat the Soviets in the space race. And he did. Um, so that's who Von Braun is in, you know, two and a half sentences. Um, wow. A genius, to be sure. Don't get me wrong. But also a former Nazi. Um, well, orbital assembly. Make mistakes. I know. Um, orbital Assembly Corporation. Um is a is run and this is the company that's supposed to build this hotel um it's run by john Blinko, who i don't really know i've seen his name around he's a pilot that's all i really know i, I tried I, I didn't do too much reading of this because like i said i think this is stupid um <laughs> there's one thing about it that really got me was i think i read in the line it said mm. we're hoping to start construction to 2026 and have it up there by 2027 i was like I'm pretty sure most space things aren't built, you know, in a season. They aren't. And you would probably say that, you know, a 27 room, ho uh, however many rooms, 20 something, 24 room hotel would probably take longer on Earth to construct. And you would probably be right. The one thing that space has going for it is you can prefabricate everything on Earth and fly it up and just kind of snap it together like really expensive, fragile Lego. Nice. Um And that's kind of what the International Space Station is. It's a bunch of really, really old Lego pieces. Uh, that have been screwed together, more or less, and held together with duct tape, uh, Elmer's glue, like the kind that you would, like, put on your hand and then peel off and be like, ah, my skin is peeling off. Um, and and uh, and pipe cleaners stick with the, you know, the childhood pipe arts. Cleaners. Remember pipe oh cleaners? God. All right, I so we're not, we're not going to um, the space uh, hotel anytime soon when COVID no. is done. So um, one of the, the methods to get us to and fro would be elon musk's tesla the big rocket tesla um they had an interesting day today when they um again tried to land one of their test rockets what they did was is they flew they, their, their idea is we're going to fly people in a really cool pod up to yep. space then we're going to come back and we're going to land the people on the ground one of the things that they're doing now is they are landing the rockets on the ground but they're not landing people on the ground how's no. that going so far i think they've tried three times yeah so to jump back a little bit they've successfully landed people in the water uh but that's yeah, not well, with the spacecraft they're testing right now that had an awful lot to do with gravity that did have an awful lot to do with gravity in fact it had everything to do with gravity um but that being said what starship is eventually going to be able to do is what you said it's going to ferry people to and from you know space your dumb space hotel the moon mars your dumb mars hotel mm -hmm. um you know any of the things in between uh, but that's still a long way out so like you said uh the starship was tested 
It took off from Boca Chica Ranch in Texas on the, New, on the Gulf of Mexico coast, uh, got up to about 10 kilometers in altitude, flipped on its back, sailed down to Earth, and landed perfectly. Mm -hmm. well, and then about tippy. 45 minutes later, it exploded. Yeah. Um, it was like a leaning tower of rocket. Yeah. It didn't so, quite look right, but, but they landed. No, yeah, and, and that's the big thing, because the first two iterations of this ended with the rocket exploding upon trying to land. Um, and, you know, no matter what anyone will say about whether or not it was a spectacular failure, it was, in a lot of ways, a success because of the sheer amounts of data uh, that mission scientists and engineers were able to, to extract from uh, the fleeting moments of joy we felt before it all went up in flames, kind of like 2020. Um, the... <laughs> Today's or yesterday's time isn't real anymore. In the uh, not so recent past, um, it landed, and what people think happened is one of the landing legs, uh, one of the hydraulics must have snapped or something like that, and it kind of leaned. Um, if you if you're going online, you can just look up you know Starship test explosion. You'll be able to find that, and like you know a bunch of other compilation videos of people going, "Whoa, it blew up." Um, but what was interesting about this one is, is it landed you know, essentially perfectly fine. Um, but there was this telltale kind of wisp of flame at the bottom of the spacecraft um, that kind of went on for a couple minutes. And, you know, as the announcer was kind of saying, oh, yeah, that, that looks pretty good. We did it successfully. Um, these flames just kind of kept going. And at that point, the, uh, you know, the water suppression system came on and then the stream ended and it was all uh, hunky-dory. Uh, but a bunch of uh, super nerds um, who have their cameras trained on the Boca Chica site essentially 24-7 um, uh, caught it about you know, about 3.30 you know, Pacific, 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the whole thing just kind of blew up, just chilling there on the pad. It just kind of blew up, hopped in the air, and then fireballed its way back to the ground. Um, which, you know, not great. They would have liked to have kept it from exploding. Uh, when prototypes explode, it's not good. We don't like that. Um, but Elon Musk, uh, if anything, is prepared. He's already got the next iteration of, of Starship, the next prototype Starship, already essentially ready to go. Um, because what Star what SpaceX is doing really is, is unprecedented. Uh, what we and everyone can witness is pure prototypical... Uh, engineering at its finest. It's all trial and error, and it's all out in the open for everybody to study and look at, which is almost unheard of. Uh, generally, people are really secretive about stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people don't like to publicize their failures. Uh, and as much as I'll rake Elon Musk over the coals for various things, uh, you have to acknowledge the fact that the man is a genius. Uh, when it comes to stuff like this. He's terrible at naming children, but he's really smart with words. No, he's com completely awful at that. Uh, and also awful at treating his employees, but that's another story for another time. Um, <laughs> but the whole... Look, I I, I, I don't take prisoners here. <laughs> I, I, I say what needs to be said. Um, but what we're getting to see in real time, essentially, and out in the open, is the iteration process of creating a spaceship. And this is something that, you know... NASA, Roscosmos, the Russian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, and other private companies have mostly done, mostly under wraps. Yeah. Um, and so to me, I think a big part of, or a big reason this is super interesting to me, and I think should be interesting to everyone, is that we're getting to see the failures. You know, they're documented. Well, one thing that gets me here, though, is when we when we look back at 
the shuttle, right? I mean, I don't recall the space shuttle going up without people on it when you look way back into time, right? Like there was the rockets and they had the tests. And then, I mean, could they have hidden test launches of a space shuttle? And then, like, I don't know. It just seems like someone drew the short straw and it was like, okay, Billy, you're in. <laughs> Cross your <laughs> fingers. <laughs> um, for this, and, and you know, the space shuttle is before my time in, in terms yeah. of the testing and deployment. But from what I can recall, just off the top of my head here, um, what they essentially did was the the body of the space shuttle was tested, as you know, as a plane would be tested. It was test to see if it could take aerodynamic pressure. They tested it in pieces, right? The 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 crew capsule, the part and what the cockpit essentially where everyone sat was, as far as I can remember pressure tested and all that kind of stuff on the ground independently. So there was not really a, you know, a, a big worry, not to mention that the space shuttle itself had relatively small engines. Um, what Starship is right now is only really half of what Starship is eventually going to be. Um, Starship as it is, is what's supposed to be the top of what is going to become the Starship super heavy uh, spacecraft. Um, so Starship is going to have six engines at the end, and every test that we've seen so far has flown with three. So it'll have double that for, you know, real life, you know, going to space and all that stuff. Uh, but it's going to be sitting on top of a stack of 30 rockets. And that's oh. not a typo. Um, the, the rockets that are underneath the the Starship right now are, are new generation Raptor engines, and that's what SpaceX calls them. So Starship will have six. But what, uh, what Musk is calling the super heavy, which is going to be the rocket that gets it off of Earth's surface, um, is going to have 30 of those bad boys uh, strapped to the bottom. And what will happen Yeesh. is when it's all done, it'll be able to launch 100, uh, blah, 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 100 metric tons um, of material, you know, people, supplies, you know, stuffed animals, pork chops um, into low Earth orbit. Um, that's a whole whack load of stuff. Um, hmm. And then what will happen with the bottom half, the 30 rockets, the super heavy uh, portion of the rocket, it'll come back down to Earth like its current rockets do, and it'll land and we'll be able to reuse it. Um, so that's kind of the, you know, the, the future step here. Once they're able to get space, you know, Starship itself uh, up in the air, rotating, landing repetitively multiple times without catastrophic failure, uh, then they'll start to, you know, marry it. Uh, is, is a term that people like to use when they're talking about spacecraft. You marry segments together. Uh, they'll be able to start marrying it to um, the, the super heavy uh, rocket section at the bottom. And when all is said and done, right now, uh, Starship itself is about as tall as a 10-story building. It doesn't look like it. Um, but if you get video of it up close, it is astonishing to think that this, what is essentially a 10-story stack of aluminum and other metals, can let alone fly, but flip around in the air and land again. Um, that's yeah. going to be on top of a stack of 30 rockets, and that whole thing is going to be taller than the Saturn V. Well, and, and it's like a pencil, which is tippy. I don't know if yeah, you tried to right, stand a pencil on its end. It's, that's a tough one. Like I, I read some interesting um, some interesting hmm. numbers, and I tried to search how much fuel does does do these rockets use. Yeah. And one of the cool things, I, I, I found a website that actually – it's like a environmental sustainability site. So I yeah. thought, okay, well, if anyone's going to be like brutally direct about that number, it's not going to be, you know, the, the pro rocket people. It's going to be the anti rocket no. people. Exactly. So he here's what this, this site had said. They still use the rocket propellant, which is basically a high end kerosene. Yeah. And they, 
burn 29,600 gallons um, of fuel. And it then they go into how much CO2 it releases. But then yep. they compare a, a 777 flying from New York to London and compare it. And it is incredibly efficient compared yep. to a 777 flying people across the Atlantic Ocean. So um, to a point where it is way worse to fly an airplane with people across the Atlantic, which happens hundreds of times a day. Well, it used to happen hundreds of times a day. No, it happens uh, versus like yeah, a, ro- a rocket launch, which is actually way more efficient. So I just think we should start putting these rockets on airplanes. That'd be fun. And and you bring up, that's a really good point, because it's something that I hadn't really thought about that has been kind of lurking in the back of my mind, like many things do, like this one game I play about horses. Um, there's Elon Musk has stated before that he sees a future where we replace airplanes with starships. Yeah. We're yeah, because they would because, go straight up, and then they would yeah, come straight down. That's exactly it. And if you think about it, an airplane will travel thousands of kilometers across the sea, whereas space is only 100 kilometers up. Interesting. Right? So the, the amount of fuel you know, per second is obviously going to be incredible to think about uh, when Starship launches. But in order, you know, if you want to get people from New York to London, both faster and more efficiently, if we can get Starships... To or any kind of spaceship that can carry people, and you know, uh, Jeff Bezos's Bond villain Elon, uh, Bond villain Elon Musk um, rival company Blue Origin is working on um, a rocket as well for this. Um, if we can get to a point where you know rockets are really, really reliable, uh, which SpaceX has demonstrated that they kind of can be, they've landed, you know. 100 or almost 100 i believe successful launches back on earth with multiple used boosters um perhaps there is a future where instead of taking a flight across the atlantic we pop into a you know a funky spaceship uh rocket into low earth orbit and coast back down into london um it would and in, in all likelihood be more efficient um counterintuitively um i did want to bring attention to one last thing uh, we're talking all about you know bringing people into space on this uh, the super heavy starship already has a customer. Um, really? uh, he's a Japanese billionaire by the name of Maizawa Yusaku. Um, and he's launching on a mission called Dear Moon. And this is good. This is SpaceX's first customer. Um, and this is going to be a six day journey around the moon. Um, they want to, you know, launch this mission in 2023. So that's, you know, around two years ish wow. from now. So that's kind of the timeline that SpaceX has, you know, really put their money where their mouth is on this. And here's the kicker. Uh, Maizawa Yusaku is looking for crew members to join him. He has one ticket. There is more than one seat on that ship. Wow. So if you want to, you know, if you want to try your luck, um, you know, and try and get yourself uh, on Elon Musk's uh, starship around the moon in 2023, he's looking for eight crew members. Um so, you know, you could look it up. It's called the Dear Moon Mission. Uh, I'm not going to volunteer. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm going to find myself but... a SpaceX coupon. It's a little out of my price range. So I'm Googling oh, no, he's, uh, SpaceX he, no, no. coupons. Oh, no, he's he's bought the tickets. It's You don't need to. Oh, they're prepaid tickets? Yeah, he's he's bought up the ship. Wow. He's looking for applications. Huh. Maybe we should and... send a shift head listener. Oh, that'd be insane. But. Before we go here, I just want to say that the big thing that he wants to do, and this is originally 
the idea. He wanted to bring artists because he felt that seeing the moon and Earth from space would create something that astronauts have, have claimed when they're in the International Space Station. Their entire perspective on humanity changes when they see it from space because they realize that everything that has ever happened has happened on that tiny little dust ball. Um, and so what he originally wanted to do was bring artists and think that maybe this could spawn a new renaissance of outward looking artists. And now it's, I'm not sure it's if it's artists specifically, now it's just applicants, eight civilians. But you yeah. never know, if you want to find out more, it's just dearmoon.earth. And that's a really cool website, actually, dearmoon.earth. Apply, it'd be cool. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I, they could also uh, find some anti-maskers to go with it too. Why not? And change their perspective. Oh, I uh, mm, mm, don't waste it on them. <laughs> uh, Andrew Ferreira. Sorry, buddy. Back in the cage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's fine. I'm used to it. All right. Uh, there he goes, Andrew Ferreira and Weird Science. Maybe in uh, COVID's all finished. Little trip around the moon in your future. It's the Shift Podcast. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go when this is all done? What do you want it to look like? Is it a trip? I mean, you'll be shocked to hear that I want to go to my favorite place, and that's Hawaii. Where do you want to go? Do you want to go to a concert? You know, do you want to be able to go to a bar and, you know, see that friend that you haven't seen in so long? And I love you, man, with a big sweaty hug. I mean, where do you want to go? That's the question. What does this life look like after COVID? Dr. Jason Kinderchuk joins us now. Uh, he's a virologist, and... um you spend an awful lot of time, Jason, in your world looking at little bugs, and uh, you've seen the impact of these little bugs on our lives. Ebola is a great example of that. And you've seen what life looks like after that. I guess the question really to start is, COVID, is it around for now until as long as we can imagine it being around, kind of like a chicken pox yeah. So the, this is the the, you know, the the million dollar question, right? I, I think we are getting to a better place now of what we understand, uh, you know, is going to happen at the end of all this. And I think what we're seeing now is certainly the transmission rates across the globe. Um, they're not as high as they've been, but certainly they haven't you know, dropped off. Um, and even with the global vaccination programs, I think what we're getting a better idea for is the fact that likelihood is that this virus is going to stick around for a while. I think it's going to be difficult for us to eliminate across the globe. Certainly across different regions, we may see elimination. Um, but I think looking at how vaccines have been rolled out and, and, and what we've seen certainly in Canada, let alone in low middle and in uh, low and middle income regions of the world, it's going to take a while for us to get a handle on this across the globe. And of course, with that, what happens is the virus gains a foothold and it continues to transmit. It gets harder to uh, to kind of stomp out. So I think the unfortunate reality is that it's going to be around for a while. But the, the caveat is, is that we have vaccines that take severe disease down to basically a cold. So I think it's going to come to a point of being more of an inconvenience than what we've seen currently. Um, but it it is something that's going to resonate for us for a long period of time. So... Maybe this is just too obvious of a question. Last springtime, when this started rolling out, here we were a year ago, and things were, it was spreading, 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 and some of the talk was, much like the flu, summertime is going to be better because temperatures are going to inhibit this. If we look at some of the places that, and there's a little bit of conspiracy around this, well, why is all of a sudden it going down? Is climate, um, just by 
geography plus time also impacting us right now? Is it a bit of a, a disguise? Yeah, I, I think we're getting a sense of that, right? And I think the, the biggest, you know, kind of reality is, is that in warmer areas, what happens is that you have people that are outside more, right? So if we've had high transmission rates in certain uh, jurisdictions and, and it's been predominantly cold during the season, well, as soon as it starts to warm up, people go outdoors and then what happens is that it dilutes out the ability of the virus to transmit from person to person. We know that the efficiency of transmission is still highest if you're in an enclosed space with, uh, with low ventilation. So I think that's part of the reality is that it's not so much... Um, the, season, the true seasonality of the virus. Right now, I think a lot of it is just more our behaviors that come as a part of, uh, of the changing of the seasons. Now, will that you know, kind of entail that you know, some point down you know, a few years from now that this becomes a seasonal virus, a, a truly seasonal virus? Maybe. Um, but certainly, I, I think for now, what we're seeing is really a reflection of, of how our behaviors uh, can, can really change the, you know, the transmission of a virus in real time. It's kind of like technology. Hey, it's, it still boils down to it's a human problem. It's not a virus problem or a climate problem. It's still just a human behavior problem, which is kind of ironic. Huh. Well, but I, I, you know, I think there's there's a uh, maybe some optimism in that though, right? In but if we understand that some of this idea of transmission is based on human behaviors, um, that also puts us into the driver's seat of being able to control a lot of these things. And to me, I look at that and say that actually means that through behavioral changes alone, we can actually have a big impact on, on how the, the transmission of this virus and other viruses occurs. And, and that really, I think, provides us with a, a, an opportunity to try to lessen the effects of, of some infectious diseases. Down in America, Texas in particular, we've seen mask mandates be dropped and all these things. And I think everyone like has a shudder of, oh, no. Um, but at the same time, looking at where we are in Canada, we know that that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Do we have a future where, I mean, if you think back on it backwards in time, it's kind of it's kind of crazy to think that this wasn't a thing anyway. But hand sanitizer everywhere we go. Like if I'm going to walk into a Flames game at the Saddle Dome, I imagine a future where hand sanitizer is going to be readily available always. Masks, we're going to see people in masks often. Um, kind of like the Asian cultures have. Like, I mean, this has been a normal part of their lives for a long time is if you don't feel good, you put a mask on. Are we going to see that in our world? Do you think going forward? Is it part of our our, our, our life has changed? Yeah, I think there certainly is an aspect of that, right? So we look back historically at all the different pandemics that have occurred. Certainly 1918 is the one that probably, you know, there's the most information on because we saw the largest transition in, I think, in global society, um, you know, following that, that year and a half period. And I think we are probably along the lines of what we, what we saw there, where a lot of things from a public health standpoint and behavior standpoint changed. Um, you know, suddenly, you know, people, you know, are now maybe more comfortable with wearing masks. Um, they understand the durability of masks and the reasoning for wearing them. Certainly the hand sanitizer issue, I think that that has changed um, our perceptions of uh, you know, hygiene all over again, right? I think that um, certainly there's, there's some idea of hygiene theater that, that we have to you know, kind of appreciate that, yes, there's a, there's a level that a threshold that we don't need to go beyond. Um, but I think it, it will change the nature of how we look at infectious disease. So some of these things I, I think are going to be with us for the longer term. But I don't necessarily see that as a negative. I see that some of these things um, will help us control, 
infectious disease as a whole, looking at the, the difference in flu rates this year, it's been unbelievable to see just how quickly we could actually gain control of a virus that you know kills 500,000 people per year across the globe. Um, that to me is something that you know I kind of take to heart and say, we actually can control this uh, you know, much better than we have in the past. And, and again, just through basic behavioral changes. Is that how we have to look at those things? Uh, someone had said to me in private conversation just last week, well, you know, with all the things going on, there has been no flu. And I stopped. I'm like, whoa, of course there's no flu. Everybody's at home. Nobody's hugging. Nobody's kissing. And everybody's washing their hands, which is what everybody said we should be doing around the flu in the first place. So you can't even compare the numbers because of the fact that we're actually not being disgusting beasts like we used to be anymore. Is that kind of the way that we need to look at that is that it's possible that as soon as we go back to being disgusting beasts again, that these things might change? Well, I think there's a balance, right? I think a big part of it is the identification that if we have symptoms of disease, if we're, if we have, you know, a tickle in our throat, if we have a slight cough, um, there is no gold medal for, for going ahead and, and going to work and exposing others to that. Um, you know, we, we've heard, you know, certainly in my you know, household when I was growing up, you know, my parents talked about, you just tough it out. You just, you know, get Mine things too. done. Yep. I, and I think that that's changed, right? And I think we've seen the benefits of that. And, and hopefully moving forward, maybe we'll kind of move ourselves back a little bit away from that and say, you know what, actually, it's better that I, you know, stay at home. And yes, you know, some of those transmission rates will come back because we're not all sitting at home. We're not all wearing masks 100% of the time. But if we can keep people that are sick or symptomatic, um, you know, uh, at home and, and certainly uh, have them wearing masks when, when they are more comfortable with uh, undertaking those things, I think we actually gain, we'll be able to see a, a real reduction in, in transmission. Now, I'm not one to ask you to comment on politics, so I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. <laughs> um, but that being said, though, there's a lot of conversation around sick pay for wage-based workers in order to be able to get a couple of days off and not be feel like you have to come to work today. Um, there's obviously a lot of forgiveness and no questions asked about, you know, why are you sick? Like if you give a doctor's note, the doctor actually doesn't have to tell your employer why they say yep. stay home. Like that's a lot of things that, but people don't know that. I didn't know that until a couple of years ago where my doctor said, look, I can just tell your boss that you need a week off and they have to give it to you. Um, but we as employees don't know that stuff. Does that as a virologist and in your profession, is, is that really encouraging to say, you know what, we actually could get a handle on these things if we were just a little bit smarter? It is. Uh, you know, again, I think we have to always appreciate that these diseases disproportionately affect, um, you know, the, the people that tend to be in, you know, uh, quite frankly, in the lowest socioeconomic classes, people that live in congregate settings. These are people that probably do not have the ability to just take off time from work. Um if we put people into a position where uh, they're not penalized for doing that, I think we could get a real handle on that. And, and again, I think if you look at it as far as you know, the amount of money that is spent on just providing supportive care for patients that are even moderately sick that have to go to a hospital um, or people that have to go to a clinic and you know, obviously the, the billable hours that come with that and you know, therapeutics if they're needed, um, all those things, if we can take care of that by providing people with some opportunity to stay at home when they're sick, that's going to really alleviate a lot of our concerns. And again, help us keeping protections for the most vulnerable in, in our population, which I frankly, I think we should be doing. Mm. I, I will confess that when I was, when all this hit, and as a self-employed person who was concerned about 
you know, what my businesses look like and, and everything else. I, I took a job. I was, you know, stacking pallets at a grocery warehouse. And uh, I, I said to my buddy, uh, who's another business owner, I said, I think I'm just going to secure some part-time work now, just in case, because I didn't know uh, what was coming. And so I did. And I was like, man, I'm sitting at home anyway, might as well get out. So when all these things changed, and then you have a day when you don't feel so good, the the your brain like just lies to you always, right? It's like your brain, like, come on, brain, what are you doing? And you wake up in the morning, you don't feel so great, right? And then you're like, well, they're going to take my temperature at the door anyway, so they're just going to send me home. So I might as well go there. And then if my temperature's up, they're going to send me home. And if not, then I'll work, right? And so we start to just rely on these other people making these decisions for us as opposed to taking care of our own health. That awareness must have an impact forward in general, because now we think about things that we never used to think about. Like, wait a second, is that a, what's going on here? You know, oh, I'm not breathing the same today. We, we were never that self-aware. No, I don't think we were. And even thinking in my own household, I mean, you know, the, you know, amount that we've taken temperatures over the past year, uh, when we never have before. I mean, I certainly when I've traveled, um, you know, I'll always do temperature checks when I come back home and make sure that I'm feeling okay. Um, but I think a lot of these things have become more commonplace. And, and uh, you know, I think the recognition of symptoms um, has also become more commonplace. I think we've become more maybe hopefully aware of, you know, what, what does it look like when we you know, actually are not feeling well? Um, you know, that was my concern always at the start of this was, you know, when you talk to people about, you know, how did you feel two or three days ago? How many people can truly remember how they felt? I mean, I, you know, I can't tell you yesterday if I had this slight, you know, I don't think I had a slight cough. I certainly, my temperatures were fine. Um, but was I a hundred percent? I think I was, mm. um, was that necessarily true? It's, it's tough to say, right? Because you're, you're obviously very biased in how you view that. Um, so I, I think that we maybe have become, uh, I think, a little bit better at doing self-monitoring and understanding what that looks like. And, and I think and that's important. It, it resonates across against all infectious diseases, not just COVID-19. It's hard to distinguish sometimes if your temperature is up because uh, you're hungover or if you have COVID. <laughs> Let's just call that what it is. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is funny, right? Because, you know, like I, I look at myself, you know, we we have this perception of what, you know, a fever looks like. Well, what if, you know, I run fairly low in my temperatures on a, on a normal basis. So my elevation temperature may not necessarily register as a fever on, on our thermometer, but certainly I have an elevated temperature. Um, you know, in the past, you would just do a temp check and say, oh, I'm fine. You know, everything's okay. Now I think, you know, I'm, I'm certainly more aware of where my temperature is trending um, because I don't want to take that chance of having somebody else exposed. Uh, so I, I think that there is, again, that, that awareness that we're now looking, uh, you know, beyond what the average symptom is and looking more at our own health from a personal standpoint and saying, how does this reflect on how I feel normally? And is it different or is it the same? Well, this is as, you know, man to man, we're roughly the same age, you and I. Um, we can learn an awful lot from women in this conversation about paying attention to your bodies, especially the amount of women that I know that are anywhere from, you know, 40 to 55 and what their natural uh, cycle of their body starts to do. And I know a, a bunch of women that going into work in places where they take your temperature, you know, 50 years old, temperature could do anything today. 
and uh, go have a coffee, wait, come back 10 minutes later, and then you're fine. So men can learn an awful lot. I have to ask, Jason, because you always say that um, you're the second uh, smartest Dr. Kinderchuck <laughs> in the household. Has your wife ever taken your temperature just because you've you've annoyed her to the point where she's like, I'm taking your temperature, something's not right? I, certainly, we've become more open with it, right? And, and all of that, you really, I think, kind of got set in stone uh, when I started working in high containment because we we always self-monitor, right? right? So there is this thing that, you know, if you suddenly start, you know, not feeling well, um, you want to make sure that that wasn't because there was some sort of an accidental exposure or the times that I've traveled. So I really rely on her, you know, often to say, listen, if there's something doesn't seem right, um, you need to be very upfront with me and, and tell me because I'm not necessarily going to recognize those things. Um, and yeah, it's it's difficult kind of you know, giving the reins over a little bit. Um, but certainly, I, I think having that extra set of eyes has has helped me. And, and I think, you know, realizing that we don't necessarily have control over every situation. I think that's really important. Has it been used against you to do the dishes, though? Really? <laughs> I always do that anyway. So uh, no, not not as of yet. Nice. Okay, so the question we were asking earlier on the shift was, uh, where would you go? If you could pick anywhere to go now, with knowing that there is the possibility of light at the end of this tunnel, what's the first place, first thing that you would do? <laughs> we, we talked about this the uh, the other day in, in in my household so for, for me personally it'd be going back to sierra leone um i haven't been to uh to, to see any of my african colleagues probably in the better part of you know i think it was uh january 2020 was when i was in kenya um i i really want to get back and I, there's just a, a kinship with that area of the world obviously it's very important to me um but I just feel that the need to get back there. So without hesitation, I'd be on a plane. Yeah. Beautiful. I'd love to go there. I want to go see elephants. So I would go there for the elephants. I'll travel with you. You can, uh, you can, you can meet your friends. We'll say hi. And then I'll be like, I'll be over here with the beasts. (laughs) It, It certainly is always entertaining. Love it. Uh, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I think it's a positive. I like where, the, where you said that. I think that there's some positivity to be found in this and some things that we can look forward to. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on, Shane. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.